welcome to the Yoast SEO podcast. And this week we have a guest that has been a friend for a long time. And we go back to SMX Stockholm in 2009, I think, which is incredibly long time ago by now. Um, so I bring you Rand Fishkin, the founder of Moz, and more recently Spark Toro, which I, I'm guessing we're going to talk about. How are you, Rand? I'm good, Yos. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, well, it's great for you of you to be here. I think you are actually one of the few people so far that. I think has also been on my previous podcast, which was like nine years ago. Ah, amazing. You were an early adopter of the podcast trend. Yeah. And then, and then stopped, <laughs> Fair which enough, is never a enough. good thing to do. I know I need to get, I need to get back to video myself. I'm uh, I just ordered a ton of video equipment to set up a new video series because it's been, been too many years since Whiteboard Friday. Yeah, that um, well, that inspired us. We have a full uh, recording studio uh, in our offices here at Yoast, and uh, we're currently hiring uh, two video editors uh, to to complete our team a bit more. So yeah, no, it's def video is definitely something that we spend a lot of time and effort on. Um, I. Um... I think that's a really wise investment. <laughs> it, it, oh, it, it looks like it was. Yeah. Um, how's SparkToro doing? Tell us what is SparkToro for those that don't know it, and, oh, and how sure. are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, so SparkToro is an, a market research and audience intelligence tool, which which really just means basically that we collect tens of millions of profiles from the primarily the social web, so ten social networks and websites. Um, and then we aggregate all the data about them, uh, toss the PII, the personally identifiable information. And so now you can search SparkToro for virtually any describable online audience and we'll tell you all sorts of things about their behavior and characteristics. So for, for example, you could say, I wanna know uh, what chemical engineers in the UK are watching on YouTube. Um, I want to know what podcasts they listen to. I want to know what websites they visit. I want to know what social accounts they follow. Or I'm interested in people who use the hashtag indie gaming in California. Or I want to know about people who are um, illustrators and artists. Or I'm interested in people who follow my competitor's social account. And I want to see what that audience uh, is also paying attention to because maybe I can reach them there. All of those things are available through SparkToro. And it's, um, yeah, it's going, I would say, reasonably well. It's not like a skyrocket success. We've got, um, we've got about 40,000 uh, users right now. So people who use the, the product uh, once a month or more. Okay. Um, and those are, those are free users. So you can, you know, anyone can sign up for free and use the product, run 10 searches a month. And then if you need more data, more searches, more features, whatever, you can sign up for a paid account. We've got about uh, just under 600 paying subscribers. We've been profitable since September, which is which is great. We launched in April, so the first few months were like very very quick rise, and then we've been chugging along ever since, and sort of growing the feature set and growing our data, and um, yeah, getting some more customers. And it is you know sort of a slow, steady software as a service business. Yeah. 
It's, it does sound good though, because you, you've got a very small team, right? That uh, <laughs> yeah, just uh, just me and Casey, just the two of us. Yeah, so and it, some it, contractors. Yeah, it's, sometimes I'm a bit envious uh, <laughs> uh, and want to go back to those old days. Yeah, Whereas, it is. I mean, I did the um, you know similar to yourself, right? Like Moz was a 200 plus person company, and you know, a couple different offices and um, tens of millions of dollars in revenue and tens of thousands of customers and. I mean, that definitely, I don't know, felt very um, big capitalist of me. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but it well, is, you, it is, you even talk, and took funding. So that's the, yeah, that's where yeah, we differed. Right. Yeah. And raised, yeah, raised a lot of venture, raised 30 million in venture. Um, and I don't, um, I don't miss it one bit. <laughs> there's not, there's not a single part of that uh, that I miss. I would say I miss the days of, uh, maybe sub 50 people, you know, when we were in the um, one to $10 million revenue range, I, that I really enjoyed that. That was a great size. It's a great feeling. Um, I love the, the team camaraderie and closeness, but as you get bigger, things get more corporate and they get more sort of, um, I don't know exactly what to call this. There's more infighting. There's more contentiousness between people inside the company. Um, there's more of a feeling that, you know, rather than, oh, well, engineering is, you know, Casey and Devin, it's engineering is the enemy and marketing are the good people or, you know, whatever it is. My team is good. Their team is bad, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, I really, I really, really dislike that. I'm gl- I, I spent so many months of every year just trying to make internal team culture function well, which I think every CEO does, right? I'm, I know that um, that is true for virtually every business of scale, but I don't like that job. <laughs> That's not a, not I, no, I, I don't like that job either, which is why I stood down as CEO two years yeah. ago and, and, and said to my wife, Marika, who luckily does all of that indeed. Um, and she's in, she's incredible, by the way. I mean, obviously, yeah. it's been, been a couple of years since we've been able to spend time with her. But um, when yeah. we met her, Geraldine and I were both blown away. So I it's, think I think you made a very good decision. I, I, I think I did, too. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I think one of my best decisions was marrying her. So that is uh, um, now it, it is it is incredible to look at her and see her do that but it's certainly also not something i enjoy most so i'm very happy to be doing product and and still get to do some coding Uh, because in the end i'm a deaf geek and not something else Um, but as you're doing this you're doing it for the second time does that really differ in how you approach building a business oh yeah i mean um everything about spark toro is um completely, you know, almost 180 difference. The, the only real big similarities are it's still software that's in the marketing space that can be purchased as a subscription. Um, it's still relatively low cost. You know, the, the lowest price packages start at 50 bucks a month. The, um, so it's a self-service product, not an enterprise. And other than that, everything else is different, right? Team size, the way we raised funding, our long-term goals, what success looks like. You know, for Moz, success would really be getting to 100 million plus in revenue with a 15 to 20% growth rate year over year and having an IPO or being sold for yeah, maybe five to six X that revenue. 
that would be sort of the minimum bar for success. And I, I don't know if Moz is going to get there. I, I wish them well, but um, seems seems like a stretch right now for sure. I think they're in a really tough spot with um, how the the SEO software marketplace has sort of evolved. Um, my my success <laughs> for SparkToro is hey, if this company gets to a million dollars a year in revenue or two, it'll be a runaway success for its investors and the founders, right? And so that's um, that, that's just a night and day difference. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, I, I often wonder what success looks like. It, 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 the funny thing is because we are not funded, for us, it's always a very different thing uh, right? because we're basically completely bootstrapped. Um, but we are in that same space that Moz is in now with uh, 120 employees now and, uh, uh, well, well over 10 million in revenue as well. So it's, it is, uh, it, it, at some point it becomes a real business. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and, it, and you start looking at, the, at those things. Yeah. It is very interesting to see that. Um, yeah. Well, and I think um, th there's a big uh, sort of focus in the, especially the, the venture backed world and sort of the tech world and Silicon Valley and the culture that spreads out from there that tries to, insult and demean small businesses or entrepreneurs who want to stay small or those who are trying to build things independently or those who don't want to raise funding or, um, you know, right. And the pejorative they use is you're a lifestyle business. Oh, that's adorable. How cute. Let us know when you want to play with the big kids. And it's a very effective, um, shaming strategy, right. And, and has got a ton of people, in tech, believing that if you don't build a venture style, you know, one in a hundred unicorn, uh, 99 failures type of business, um, that you are abdicating your responsibility and that you are um, admitting defeat and failure before you've even given it a try, right? <laughs> it's just, uh, I, that's it a cultural nightmare. Yeah, but it's also, I think, a, the direct result of what um, capitalism looks like right now. Um, which Absolutely, is, um, very American-based capitalism, and not, and you know, us being True. from Europe, we've always looked at that slightly differently. Um, Why? It's also because it's well, it's also because our risks are different. I think I um, yeah. it, it's. Um, even when this goes wrong, I know that my family will still have health care. Yeah, and uh, that is, yeah, the, the, the opposite in the United States, right? There's plenty of people who have decent jobs and make decent livings, and it could all vanish in a flash, and their lives could be, you know, literally turned to um, struggling in a trailer park to get their diabetes medicine, right? Like, and that, yeah. that happens to a lot of Americans. Yeah, and that that makes that a whole different ball game. It is interesting what you were saying about uh, Moz and the the way the the SEO space evolved because it does seem like we have like three, four, five big tools: Semrush, uh, Ahrefs, Moz, all these tools competing for delivering all the tools to everyone. <laughs> yeah, instead of specializing on a couple of things. Well, and there are specialist tools, and I think they actually do pretty darn well. Um, so I look at some tools like 
um, you know, Buzzsumo, which was bought by Brandwatch, or uh, Screaming Frog, which which has done very very well for themselves for a long time, um, or tools like uh, what is it? Uh, gosh, it's been a little. I'm, I'm like three years out of the space, so I'm yeah. I'm well. So I mean, the Yoast plugin is you know very much a tool that people associate with their you know their WordPress site as opposed to oh, that's a substitute for Moz or that's a substitute for Ahrefs or a substitute for SEMrush. Um, I think those three, along with maybe a couple others, you know, maybe um, players like an SEO Clarity or a, a Systrix or something like that, right? Those are, are all playing in that all major SEO things to all people in the cloud for any type of site, um, SMB all the way up to enterprise. I don't, I don't actually like that game. I don't like playing the I'm everything to everyone. I think specialization is a really, really smart way to go. Yeah, it's also, uh, it, 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 your definition of done becomes a lot clearer <laughs> when, you, when you look at that. It's, yeah, and quality yeah. is easier to measure too, right? I mean, I think it's really, I think it's um, tough for years. You know, for years at Moz, I remember the, the frustration of being like, gosh, um, I talked about this in a Twitter thread a while ago, but like, you know, SEMrush and Ahrefs were for sure, no doubt about it, just crushing Moz on features, right? They were launching more features all the time, had a much wider suite of, you know, whatever data and rows and columns. Um, and Moz had this like, oh, well, you know, surely SEOs will care about data accuracy and Moz's data accuracy is much better, right? So whatever, our metrics correlate with, um, rankings better or our rank tracking is far more accurate. So people will choose us for that reason. And that was not true. People don't give a shit about accuracy of rankings. Like SEOs, once you get to scale, the accuracy of your rankings data, pff, whatever. Google's inaccurate. SEMrush is inaccurate. Ahrefs is inaccurate. Moz is inaccurate. Maybe less so than the others, but who cares? Like the, it doesn't matter all that much. No, I... Uh... For a lot of those things, what probably matters most is is the trends and whether they can show upwards trends to their customers. Yeah. Oh my God, that was one of those weird things where we went, well, but but the rankings went down. Why do they want to see that they went up? Oh, because consultants and even in-house people like to show that things are going up and to the right. So maybe we should just say they got more links, even if they didn't. <laughs> It, it it is that sort of stupidity that were that yeah that really um, drives me mad. It, it it a lot of the things that I see happen in the SEO space baffle me because well we've both been in this in that space you know, you you're sort of out of it but I, I've been in the SEO space for fifteen years now and um, it, I just look at it and the new cycle just repeats. <laughs> it's literally like it, 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 you see these things go by and you see barry schwartz bless him uh post uh, news for, for uh, and you go like but didn't we do this three years ago and six years ago and and it's like it, it keeps on happening yeah yeah i think it's very um it's gotten to a mature point and so the pattern has emerged and if you've been watching long enough you just feel the same ebb and flow again and again. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that it was like that 
as much um, from sort of, you know, 97 to 2012, 20, you know, even 2014, there was so much rapid change, right? Just sort of, you know, rapid growth of the internet around the world and adoption, Google going from just this really dumb page rank based engine to a very sophisticated deep learning neural network system um, and the massive amount of change that happened in there and introduction of things like Google Maps and YouTube and all the rich snippets and results and this, you know, the rise of mobile, like you had massive, uh, truly evolutionary change, but I'm kind of with you the last like six years, maybe it's felt a little, this is, you know, it's not, it's not evolution anymore. It's just sort of small step changes all in the same direction. Yeah, yeah. it is. And, and it is all, um, well, it's somewhat recognizable, it seems. Yeah, and, and I think maybe that's an advantage that folks can have in the space is that if you study it for a while and you see these patterns repeating, you can predict what the next few years will look like. And then you can make smart decisions about your strategic investments and what's going to give you a competitive leg up or not. And, you know, for me, like, I, I don't know if you've, like, um, played around with spark toro much but like the our have, marketing yeah. oh not much but i have played around with it <laughs> oh okay cool yeah but like our you know our marketing and our focus is very non-seo these days which is weird for me right because i was i was in that world for whatever 17 years and um I, you know we barely rank for any keywords and that is it's i wouldn't say it's intentional but it is not where i'm putting my investment like a lot of my investment these days goes into I want to be in all of these channels and places and sources of influence that I know can reach potential customers. And that's how they'll find me rather than like ranking number one for, I don't know, audience research tool or something like that. Yeah, no, I can imagine that's also a very hard, that approach would be very hard to do right now. And because you're probably still building up your brand as well. So you're still, you're still, um, sure. I, I, a lot of the content marketing, I, I posted an, an article about content marketing the other day that was actually spot on in many ways and how we think about uh, content marketing. It's really fun to see you write about the stuff that we do <laughs> internally. Um, but it is, um, the content marketing stuff only really works when people already trust your brand hmm. and, and, and when, when you've already got a connection with them, because yeah. otherwise you can try and tell them that story, but you'll, you'll have to connect them to your brand as well in, in telling them that story. And that is really hard. Yeah. I think it, it pays tremendously to have someone hear about you in a positive way from some source that they already trust three or four or five times before they go and investigate your product or, you know, check out your website or, um, whatever it is, follow your social channels. Um, yeah. and, and I think that we're, you know, spark Toro is probably getting to that point where a lot of people in our potential audience have heard of us a few times. Um, I think we could reasonably invest in content and SEO. Um, but it's, you know, with a team of two, it's do you want to put effort into product and sort of distribution and customer support and um, improving the data, or 
do you want to produce a lot of content and rank for more search phrases? And we've sort of opted to have that, um, you know, Casey spends almost 100% of his time on product investments. And I'm probably split five or six different ways between like, whatever, you know, biz dev and training folks and customer support and digital PR um, and some content, um, a lot and some social and some events and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then some product as well. But we could we could probably hire an agency to do it. I, I um, <laughs> Yost, you'll be you'll be surprised. I um, I tried to convince Casey last fall <laughs> to uh, invest like six or seven grand a month in paying an agency to help us with content and SEO, and he was like, "Not yet. We don't, we don't have the money for it." <laughs> Oh, I, I, he's he likes being man. very profitable. <laughs> I yeah. So I as a um, business that has always um, just built built stuff with with money that we'd made ourselves, I can totally relate to that. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, you and he would get along. Being profitable is a very good thing, and it's also a very healthy thing to have to build a, a profitable business and and only be able to do that. I. I yeah, I do think that is a lot better. Funny enough, or not really funny, actually, I was just in preparation for this. I was looking at SparkToro, and one of the things that I wanted to talk about, which I think is really cool that you're doing, is is allowing p- uh, comparisons between audiences. Yeah, um, and th- that's one of the things that uh, that I think will make my team use that tool more because it we. So I was comparing just for research purposes, uh, uh, people that talk about WooCommerce versus people that talk about Shopify. Mm. Um, and it's hilarious to look at that because when you, 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 some of the terms that they uh, all talk about are SEO <laughs> and WordPress. And I'm like, why are why are Shopify users talking about WordPress so much? <laughs> and it's I like- mean, if you chances are good, right? That if you are in that world where you're, um, so we, the way SparkToro's database works is, you know, we have a bunch of different ways to search. But if you use the frequently talks about, this will look for people whose whatever LinkedIn posts or Twitter uh, posts or Instagram posts, um, a little bit of Facebook, but not as much. Uh, will set, have the word or phrase in there multiple times in the last 120 days, right? So if someone has said WooCommerce three or four times in the last three or four months, chances are good that they're thinking about which you know platform to use or they have a platform already and they're um, offering something across multiple platforms or they're having conversations in the digital marketing landscape and universe about different platform opportunities. So no surprise that a lot of those are going to include alternatives. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good explanation, actually. But it is very useful to look at that. I have to say, I, w- I was looking at it. I was going, yeah, this is actually something I, I might, I, I might have to look at more often, or might actually have to have to get the team to look at more often because that's how these things work now. <laughs> yeah, I think um, so. One of the features that's coming probably later this year, I would say, another four or five months. Um, at the, at the minimum is uh, tracking over time, right? So if you said, gosh, this audience that talks about WordPress or WooCommerce or Shopify, 
like we want a subscription to be able to see every week what are the new things that each of those audiences are talking about and what are the new podcasts they're listening to? What are the new hashtags they're using? What are the new social accounts they started following? What are the new press outlets they started paying attention to? That data um, to a lot of our subscribers has been very valuable and they they don't want to have to log in and like run the search and compare it to last week's search and be like, okay, what changed? Right. It, no, we should do that for them. Yeah. I want that in an email every yeah. Monday you, morning. You want an email, you know, every <laughs> week or every two weeks, however often it's, it's sort of changing with that. Like, Hey, here's all the new stuff that the audience you said you're interested in is paying attention to. It's, it's not unlike a Google alert, except it's more like a, market research study done for you every couple of weeks. Um, and I think that is uh, something we, we considered launching with it, but it was going to push out development like another nine months. And we were like, oof, we could really, we could really use a launch <laughs> and some <laughs> yeah. in, inflow. So, well, it's also, I'm very much, but that's partly maybe my open source background. I'm very much of the uh, launch early and often and, and release often kind of the thing. Launch small stuff, see if people use it and then, and then improve on it rather than try and build a complete feature. I think that's what a lot of tools do and, and it's, it, it, it almost never works. Yeah. My, so my perspective on that is I want that validation as quickly as I can get it, but I don't want it in public because um, what I have seen a lot, I think this is this is not, much less true if you're a brand that very few people know or very few people are paying attention to your launch. You can get away with whatever, right? You can have a very minimally viable product if a couple hundred people are, are the people who are paying attention. But if it's a few thousand or a few tens of thousands and your market is, you know, sort of influenced very strongly by those first few thousands of people who are paying attention to your product, it's really tough to rewrite the story of what you are. And yeah. so what I've seen, you know, Moz was a good example of this, where when we launched products that were poorly received and had the message of, oh, well, this is an MVP and it'll get better, that that was never believed and taken seriously. And I, I just don't think that's how people think, right? Nobody looks at a product and is like, well, that's a piece of crap from Moz. Well, I'm sure it'll get much better over the next six months. I should come back every month and check it out and see when it gets good. No, people are like, hmm, this company is launching crap. I, I should switch to someone else, right? So uh, yeah, so it, so it has to be usable, but it doesn't have to be fully featured. You can add new features. Sure. Uh, but, yeah. But what what you have is, but it, it's um, so the article I, I just mentioned that you where you talk about uh, how to do content marketing research. You're actually saying like, hey, you have to think about who's going to, going to amplify it. But in many ways, that's for, that's the same for your product, right? You, you're, yes. You have to think about the features that people are going to amplify, and, and and that our people are going to spread. And those are not necessarily always the same features that your mass market is going to use. It, it, that is actually an infuriating frustration, I think, in B2B SaaS, right? Because you are building for two audiences. Realistically, you're building for an audience that will help you attract customers and attention and links and people talking about you and word of mouth. And then you are building sort of the everyday customers are using this and getting value from it. And the overlap is... You know, it's a Venn diagram. There's things that sit in the middle of both of those, 
but there's distinct elements in each bucket as well. And yeah. I think a lot of um, a lot of product builders, a lot of entrepreneurs think almost exclusively about what will my market find valuable, what's right for my customers, and not what will be amplified, what will be talked about, what will get me marketing. When you do that, you know things things take off. My my favorite example is always um, uh, Zillow, which is like a real estate website uh, here in the United States, and I, I think they are in a, a number of countries now. But Zillow basically launched with this idea of let's offer a Zestimate, which is essentially an, an estimate of a home's price and value and worth. Um, and anyone can go plug in their address and we'll provide an estimate. And previously, the only way to do that was like to get a real estate assessment and yada, yada. And no one would ever pay for a real estate assessment of somebody else's house. But everybody was curious what their neighbor's house was worth, right? You go visit your friend's house. It's like real nice. And you wonder, gosh, I wonder, I wonder how much that house is worth. You know, so you... <laughs> Now you can go to Zillow and type in their address and be like, aha, that, you know, here's some estimate. Who cares if it's good or not, right? It doesn't, did, didn't matter. Huge marketing success helped them build the, essentially the, the real estate media business that then turned into the rest of the product. And that was always their intent. Um, and it was a very marketing thought through product, which... You know, a lot of products that have had a lot of success the last couple of decades have been that way digitally. I mean, Facebook was a people, there was like an argument on Twitter about is Mark Zuckerberg really a marketer? It's like, hey man, he designed the whole Facebook product with marketing in mind, right? Like there, essentially, how do I get uh, it? Yeah, I, mean, it's, 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 I have a couple of friends um, high up in Facebook uh, and I have to say some of the very, very, very best marketers in the world I know uh, work there so yeah no it is yeah it uh, their is approach, very their much... approach is a little different than mine but i uh i will not uh, i can't yeah. fault their skills <laughs> no 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 that's gonna be hard yeah um it's funny because what you mentioned is is something is something that we run into every day. I mean, Yoast is uh, was made great by SEOs recommending us to uh, to everyone, right. and um, now we get SEO experts who want features that no normal user will ever <laughs> use and 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 you go like, yeah, but if I can build that for you, and I would, but you'd one, you'd cut your, you shoot yourself in the foot, and B, every normal user would definitely shoot himself in the foot with that feature. And so there's a lot of these things where you go like, yeah, this is hard. And how do you, how do you cater to both those audiences in a good way? Yeah. Um, and as you grow bigger, it gets harder and harder. Uh, I, I have to say that this was all a lot easier when there were only a hundred thousand people, a uh, hundred thousand people using that plugin. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it is. Uh, yeah, it was. It, I could relate to that article very well. It's like this goes so much for almost everything that uh, that people do. Yeah, and it's uh, it's true across a lot of fields too. It, it you know it. I think it feels very true to us in B2B and in software as a service um, and serving this sort of world of digital marketers. But uh, in the article, you know, I related it to um, indie games, right? So yeah. a couple of folks in there, you know, working on their machines, just making some game for an, whatever, for a phone or, or for a PC or for the Nintendo Switch. Like the indie gaming world has these sort of 
people who are influential and have whatever, lots of YouTube subscribers or a popular Twitch channel or, you know, they whenever they post to the hashtag on Twitter and Instagram, you know, it gets tons of attention or they're whatever influential in the, in the subreddits around indie gaming. And that's what a ton of um, customers pay attention to, you know, potential gaming buyers, buyers of indie games. But those people are different from the reviewers, right? Those people are different from the influential uh, individuals who've been in the space a long time. I might have a ton of fun with an indie game, but a reviewer is like, nah, this is just a clone of this old game from 12 years ago. And so I'm going to give it a crappy, I'm not even going to cover it. Oops. <laughs> right? Yeah. So like, who are you building for? You'll never get to the indie game player and buyer if you don't first reach the influential sort of source and um, for this is true for product builders and entrepreneurs and marketers all that we have to be able to recognize what that audience distribution looks like, what a market looks like, do our research, understand that field and then play to both sides. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an, an interesting thing. And one of the things that gets me in this and that I was very happy to see in your post is that you still talk about keyword research uh, or and the whole SEO space and I go, yeah, or she, she talk about topics and I'm like, yeah, but people still search with keywords. It, I, it, this sort of doesn't really make sense yet. I get where, why they want to talk about topics and, and, and how all of that works, but it is, um, the tendency to want to throw away old stuff because we found a new tool is is one of the things that that drives me nuts. And as I say it, I I find myself sounding like an old geek. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I mean, as long as you're not um, was I, some people were have been making the argument to me recently on Twitter. I think after I shared a the results of a poll I did um, about where you got your, you know, sort of marketing education and whether you had a formal degree or not. Um, and that, that post got lots of traction in, I guess, a subsection of web marketing world of like classic marketers, like sort of old school, I think mostly advertising and positioning people. Um, but, but generally people who feel like you are not a real marketer unless you got a marketing degree from college and preferably one of these specific colleges, right? Um, and if you didn't, you better take their course. Uh, but so that, um, yeah, that idea that like marketing hasn't changed in 50 years, I think is completely wrong. But I do agree with the idea that there are principles of marketing that were useful 50 years ago and are quite useful and applicable today. Right. Both of those things can be simultaneously true. I don't think you could take whatever a marketer from 1975 and put them in 2021 and expect them to do any decent work in digital um, at all. But I do agree that there are probably principles and understanding of people's habits um, and behaviors and ability to research spaces that are still applicable today. Yeah, so human psychology hasn't changed all that much in the last 100 years. Uh, and, and and a lot of the things playing into that probably do it probably still work. That doesn't mean that not like all of the tactics changed. <laughs> all of the tactics, all of the channels, the ways you do research, the ways you reach people, the things that resonate. Whew, yeah. You got to you got to learn those sector by sector, man. 
So you spend a lot of time on Twitter, I guess, because you have a massive following on Twitter. It's, <laughs> it, I, I was looking it up and I was like, this is insane. Uh, to be um, fair, I, I cheated. I would say that more than half of my Twitter following came because in the early years of Twitter's growth, I was one of the recommended accounts. So if you, whatever, if you started tweeting about anything in digital marketing, uh, Randfish would be recommended to you as someone to follow. And so between like 2009 and 12, when Twitter was kind of like onboarding people, I was one of the recommended accounts and I, I probably got a couple hundred thousand followers that way. It's still impressive, no matter how you try to downplay it. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm just saying. But, so one of the so one of the one of the weirdest things, Yost, about my uh, Twitter account versus, for example, Geraldine's. Right. So Geraldine has about a quarter of my followers, maybe a little bit less or more these days. I'm not exactly sure. But um, when she tweets, uh, the number of impressions and engagements that her tweets receive on average is four to 10 X mine, even though she has a much smaller following. And that that's true for many people with accounts that are, you know, a, a sixth to a 10th my size in terms of following. And that's just because a ton of my followers were built in, you know, previous years, they're not actually active on Twitter anymore. Right. So, you know, something like 30, 40 percent of the 450,000 people who follow me haven't logged into Twitter in a year. Right. Yeah. And that so you, you know, you get a little bit of a biased perspective there. And this is actually one of the reasons that SparkToro built the fake followers tool. So we have this like fake followers tool where you can analyze a Twitter account and be like, hey, wait a minute, like 30 percent of <laughs> Randfish's followers are not active on the platform he more realistically has like 280,000 followers, not 450 or something, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. It's funny. I, I um, moved. The, so the Yoast account is my old private Twitter account. And oh, I, right. I, I moved myself to at Jadevalk. So I have like 12 and a half thousand followers, but I, and the Yoast account has a hundred K something. <laughs> and, um, the the Yoast account gets so much less impressions on some of that stuff than I do. It's hilarious, but it is a very different world. So I, the, a lot of my tweets are very geeky, and and I don't want to well bore uh, our. Oh yeah, users. no, I'm reading. I'm reading the exciting tweets you send. Like, what if we combined OMBed, the idea of facades, and also made OMBed URLs contain the schema JSON plus LD for the pager embedding? Yeah, it's. And, and yeah. yet, you know, you got some engagement on that. So there I, you go. I, well, the funny thing is that is actually a serious idea. Oh, um, I'm not arguing. Yeah, and you don't. I, I don't know whether you know what it is, but uh, the funny thing is that I the engagement I, I I got on that was exactly the engagement I needed. It was retweeted by Dan Brickley, who runs Schema.org. It was. Uh, um, uh, responded to by everyone uh, who needs to basically okay that idea to get it into a web standard so we can just build a web standard. I mean, that's the way we roll. <laughs> look, at, look at this. See, I mean, you are not just using Twitter for marketing. You're actually changing the marketplace for the better. Uh, that is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Facades are awesome, by the way. So if, what, if, if the, the idea of facades is that if you embed a YouTube video hmm. that you'd, and you'd first get a just an image that you have to click on to then get the YouTube player loaded so that ah. people, so that you, so, so you that, save a ton of bandwidth and you save yeah. a ton of bandwidth and you respect people's privacy by not right. actually loading the tracker. 
Yeah. yeah, you don't have to send the the data to Google every time the page loads. I love that. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, this is an idea by Google. I was like, yeah, I like the idea, but let's make this a bit more usable for people. Mm. Uh, so, and people seem to uh, well agree to the idea. I, I I really like that, and it is some stuff that that uh, yeah. Well, I'm I'm as I said, I'm a developer and a geek more than uh, than, than a marketer, even I think. Um, although I do try to play both uh, both of those things, but it is um, to me, Twitter is very much a, a thing to reach those audiences. But it's a very specific piece of the audience. Is it is is Twitter your echo chamber? Is that where you get most of your ideas, or is that? Ooh, that's a good. Um, so I would say my three sort of primary. That's eh, four. It's four really. Um, so I am most active in my email. That's where I do, you know, eighty percent of my work uh, is just in in email. And um, I'm I'm generally very fast on email. I almost never have a message that sits in my inbox for twenty four hours. I'm kind of an inbox zero addict. Um, and then yeah, a, sort of a combination of Twitter and LinkedIn are like my two primary social networks that I use for for work. I do use some Instagram and Facebook, um, and actually some, some more Reddit recently. Uh, although Reddit has been, isn't been much more of a consume and understand a market versus participatory on my, um, on my part. I don't think Reddit doesn't seem to particularly like having for whatever reason, sort of like, um, building or amplifying sources of influence. Like there's a lot of kind of anti, influence culture on reddit which is fine um and then i the the fourth one for me is really what we're doing right now it's podcasts and webinars and interviews and discussions and you know video chats um and online events and that's been (laughs) a little bit of a sanity saver for the last year during quarantine um but also a great way to generate ideas you know i think that folks who say oh well there's no substitute for getting in a room with a whiteboard with another person and like bouncing ideas off each other i, I kind of disagree i think i think video chatting or even just phone calls like you can you can do a ton of that and i i do a lot of that as well with our customers or potential customers or or you know influential folks in the field like yourself just having these types of chats and sort of going down rabbit holes of oh this is really interesting or huh that really resonated with the audience and you know, that, that turned into a fascinating whatever audiogram clip from that podcast that I did. And maybe I should write something about that. Or maybe I should think about how that is relevant to the product, right? Our little chat about, you know, tracking things over time and your, your use of the comparison tool, like, oh, maybe I should talk to Casey about, should we track comparisons over time as well as individual searches, right? Because that feels like it's relevant. So yeah. all of those are, um, are channels for me. I am relatively active on Twitter, but not, you know, I'm probably 40 tweets some week, something like that, maybe less. That That is about like um, uh, t- 10x my, my activity, <laughs> I have to say. I am much more of a reader than a, than a writer on Twitter. I, it, it, and it's, it's going down more than up. Um, but funnily enough, I don't know whether that's been the same for you, but in, during this whole pandemic, I actually probably slowed down on social more than I, and then I actually sped up because I I had less to share, but yeah, for sure. The first six, nine months I was definitely in that world. And then as it became a little more, 
whatever, normalized. Like I think this year, even just the past two months, January and February, um, I've gotten a little more back into the usual swing. Part of that too is just um, American politics last year were so brutal and overwhelming and um, Byzantine and um, yeah, yeah, apocalyptic. We've been, wa- <laughs> we've been watching. Uh... Yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah, I- it, you mentioned like, you know, things don't change all that much in a hundred years. And I sort of, um, you know, I spent time with my, uh, and, and I talked to him twice or three times a week, my, my 94 year old grandfather now, who's, um, of course, you know, Jewish and, and, uh, fled Europe and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he, yeah, he, he looked at kind of the last few years and just was like, holy shit, not again. <laughs> like how, how did this happen here? I thought, I thought we were uh, yeah. better than this. And he, you know, yeah. he's kind of a, he can be a little pessimistic about, about that stuff. But I think you're absolutely right that, that a lot of these mental models and psychology, it doesn't change over a hundred years. You know, people are, they're scared of change. They're scared of outsiders. They're, they can be very insular, especially when they feel threatened. Um, you know, the more financially insecure people are, the, the more that um, certain types of propaganda works on them. Um, yeah, it's, it's really sad. It, it's, it's sad, but it's also, it, it, well, the ways we get and we, you can get out of it have been the same for a long time as well. And if we, if we study those, then we, then we, we might be able to use that to our advantage, but it is. Um, yeah. I, so what, one of the things I do, I spend uh, quite a bit of my time on is on WordProof. I don't know if you've heard of it, but a startup that does um, uh, timestamping on uh, the, the blockchain of content. So you can prove mm. that you've published something on a particular moment in time um, and really prove it. So I can really prove through a third-party source that I published something on a particular moment, which is good for news, but also for stupid things like terms of service. And oh, mm, right. And, and um, one of the concepts that we're talking about, about a lot there is the trusted web, is about how do we get back to uh, people, well, uh, trusting what they read. And what I find funny is that one of the tools we offer is a revision history of articles. And then there's a lot of publishers out there that don't want to show the revision history of their articles. Hmm. Whereas in the past, when, when it was still a newspaper, it, it was printed. They could right, not yeah, undo mean... what they did. <laughs> they just yeah, had to... Much more challenging. Yeah. So they had, just had to retract and say, okay, we made a mistake and uh, we fixed it. And now they go like, yeah, but we don't want to show our readers the mistakes we made. I'm like, why not? What's so hard about this? But I think some, forcing some of that back into the into the web would actually be a very good way of, of opening all of this up. If everyone had to write again in, the, in thinking that what they were doing would last forever hmm. and, would, and would haunt them forever if they did it wrong, then maybe they'd think a bit more about what they, put, what they write. And, oh, you've seen some of the worst stuff as well, I, I, and Geraldine yeah. probably even more. My God. Uh, um, yeah, it, it, I think we can bring some of that a bit 
back and there's a, but there's a lot of discussion there it's it's interesting yeah. uh, interesting times uh and and uh, hopefully um it, well we we will be able to bring some of that trust back to the web at some point yeah i mean i'm uh it's definitely nice to feel like the last you know whatever it is um month and a half or so have been a little more sane and normal you know i don't I don't have to read the news obsessively anymore. I, I feel a little more freed from, I don't know, just this, this sort of uh, malaise and weight of hatred and incompetence <laughs> that was surrounding us for a long time. Yeah. Well, I, uh, let's hope it stays that way. I, uh, I, I, I'm with you there. Um, Rand, we've been talking for 45 minutes and, and that's about where I want to cut this off, but okay. it's been so wonderful talking to you. Yeah, man, so, it is fantastic to catch up. Um, great, great to hear that things are going well with uh, with Yoast and to hear about uh, the different projects you're investing in. And um, Yoast, you know, I am a fan and a supporter. And if there's anything I can do to help you or your audience, don't hesitate to drop me a line. We, we won't. Um, and um, so if you don't know where to follow Rand Fishkin, at Rand Fish on Twitter, SparkToro uh, is, is definitely something you should check out. We'll include notes in the show notes, of course. And thank you all for listening. And see you again in about two weeks. Bye.